This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma, and today we're examining the latest data on first-line therapy in type 2 diabetes, which has been the subject of debate since new guidelines were published in 2019. We're joined for a discussion of this topic by David Matthews, who's Emeritus Professor of Diabetes Medicine at the University of Oxford and a past president of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. His disclosures are available in the episode notes. So if we go all the way back to 2019, when we first saw the publication of new ESC guidelines, which included a recommendation for initiating SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1 receptor agonist monotherapy at first line in most patients. Could you remind our listeners of the rationale behind this and why it kicked off such a debate at the time? Yes. Well, first of all, we've got agents GLP-1 and SGLT-2, which have been shown in cardiovascular outcome trials to have very good effects on people with established cardiovascular disease and diabetes. The, The problem is to whom should you give these agents? And the trials showed that you should certainly give these agents to people who've got established cardiovascular disease and uh, the outcomes were really quite startling. But the people that they looked at in the trials were on average um, eight to 12 years into their diabetes uh, history. So that these people had long established diabetes and then they had got cardiovascular disease. So the question is not really whether these agents work in cardiovascular disease. That has been absolutely established in diabetes. And there is no doubt that they work extremely well to reduce weight and blood glucose. The question uh, and the debate was all about whether we've got evidence that this is a good idea to uh, use these agents from the start from the time that you have your diabetes diagnosed. And the problem with that is that they're quite expensive agents. And so uh, if you were to give these agents to people on the basis that, well, they reduce blood glucose and they reduce your blood pressure and they're they're pretty good. And and if you've got cardiovascular disease, it it will certainly help. That's, That's a very rational argument. I've got no problem with the argument. The problem comes when you say, so what is the evidence for saying that? And the evidence, unfortunately, is not in newly diagnosed patients. It's in patients with established cardiovascular disease or very high risk. And so if you gave these agents, it would be a rational thing to do. Uh, It would be something that uh, I wouldn't have a problem particularly with. But you'd be doing it in in what is an evidence-free zone, effectively. And that was the debate as to whether you should use expensive agents without doing the trials of the patients that you were recommending these agents for. We've since had some data reported from more cardiovascular outcome trials for SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. What do these add to the evidence base around their efficacy in different populations? So we're getting new data all the time, and uh, this is excellent. What we have seen from the 
the, the newer data is precisely what we saw from the previous data, which is that the uh, signal that you get from patients who don't have risk is very small. Well, in a sense, that's going to be obvious because people without risk are not going to develop enough cardiovascular disease for one to be sure about it. But if you look within the data for primary and secondary prevention in the randomized trials, although there are no differences statistically, nevertheless, if you were looking at these from a point of view of saying, do you get much of a signal in primary prevention? The answer is you don't. So I still think that, that what we have in terms of evidence is very good evidence in established risk, very good evidence in established disease, and, uh, and not very much evidence that you're getting um, any return for the, the bigger financial outlay that you're going to have if you're going to use these uh, the, the newer agents. I, that, that's, that's where we've got to, I think, in, in the evidence. Now, we've also had several post hoc analyses of cardiovascular outcome trials uh, where they looked at outcomes with and without metformin. What do these tell us? Well, the studies are interesting in as far as you, you divide data after you've done a trial. So they first of all, they're post hoc. And then you have to decide, well, why aren't these people on metformin anyway? So that there are a strange subgroup of people who weren't on metformin, and that means that they had side effects from metformin or whatever, so they weren't on metformin. But of course, within the post hoc analyses, you find that there are relatively few people who didn't have metformin. And then if you say, well, is there a statistical difference between those and the people who did have metformin? The answer is, no, there isn't, because your confidence intervals are so wide. Um, you've only got a few cases with uh, without metformin, and so you get wide confidence intervals. And that allows people to say, well, there is no difference. But actually, if you look at the hazard ratios of these, in other words, what is the point estimate? Um, and uh, you could calculate from the point estimates the size of trial that you'd need to demonstrate that there was a difference. Those point estimates tend to show um, in all of, the, uh, of these different post hoc analyses that those people who didn't have uh, metformin were doing slightly worse than those people who did have metformin. And that, of course, is what you'd expect if there was some benefit in having metformin. Uh, to say that the, the, uh, there was no difference simply means there was no statistical difference. And of course, there is going to be no statistical difference because you're dealing with small numbers uh, who weren't on metformin. So my view about that is to say, actually, um, uh, 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 my view of those data is that uh, metformin is contributing something. Uh, it's relatively small, but the reality is that there is a contribution from metformin that you can detect looking at the point estimates, the hazard ratios, and yes, there's no difference, but then uh, uh, those post hoc analyses are entirely underpowered to answer the question as to whether it's worth taking metformin or not. More recently, in January 2021, the ADA guideline was brought closer in line with the ESCs which included a recommendation to consider cardiovascular risk independently of metformin use. Uh, and an ESC-EASD writing group subset argued in The Lancet that ongoing discussions might be counterproductive and contributing to clinical inertia. Are we any closer to a consensus on this? 
Yes, I do think that we move closer to a consensus in as far as I don't think there's any argument about, between cardiologists and diabetologists about the effective use of these agents. The reality is that they work extremely well. Um, in, in a world where resources were infinite, you would probably say, well, why not put these people, put everybody onto these agents? Um, because they might develop cardiovascular disease. And if they were to develop cardiovascular disease, then we wouldn't need to detect it and we wouldn't need to change therapy and so on. And, mm. and, and those are perfectly rational and reasonable arguments. But again, you come back to the point that's saying that most of what we do in medicine should be evidence-based. And the evidence, in order to, to make general uh, 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 recommendations, the evidence has to be generalizable. And at the moment, we don't have generalizable evidence to embrace those people who are newly diagnosed. Now, those people who say we should, we should put uh, patients on uh, SGLT2s and, and GLP-1 agonists uh, from the outset um, tend to be uh, more in the cardiological rather than the endocrinological um, camp. And so if you think about it, if you're a cardiologist, the only people with diabetes you ever see are people um, with cardiovascular disease by definition. So the ESC um, has this focused view about what you should do. They have a very clear view about everybody that comes in with diabetes could go on to a GLP-1 and SGLT-2. And if I was a cardiologist, then I think that that's probably the situation that, uh, that, that I would take because, by definition, all of these people have been referred to me with cardiovascular disease. And so if it, it's, a, it's a question of where you sit. Um, I, I don't think the debate is uh, internecine. I, it, it, it's an academic debate. Um, and I do think that as time goes on, um, as these agents become cheaper, then it'll become easier um, and and more rational to be giving them earlier. So uh, th there is a convergence, but the, the bottom line is not about consensus, it's about evidence. Um, I, I can have perfectly rational debates with my cardiological colleagues about why people should be on these agents, and I'm perfectly happy uh, to see anyone taking an SGLT2 or a GLP-1 agonist. The question is, is there evidence? And if there isn't any evidence, what's the downside of giving these agents? And the downside is that they are still expensive and that there are cheaper ways of managing type 2 diabetes in the early years of the disease. And finally, what do you think is the key takeaway message for clinicians to implement in their practice here? So, so my summary would be, do, do be acutely aware of the fact that uh, SGLT2s and GLP-1, uh, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 uh, agonists are, are really helpful agents, both for cardiovascular uh, disease in terms of myocardial infarction um, uh, and atherosclerotic disease, and also uh, in the case of the SGLT2s, in the case of heart failure. So I think we should, as clinicians, be acutely aware of the necessity to look at both risks and established disease and put, age, uh, put our patients on these agents uh, very promptly if we think that there are 
clear risks in terms uh, of uh, history or biochemistry uh, or indeed ECG changes. Um, for patients with no risks uh, and uh, no established disease, uh, then I think that we could adopt more conventional treatment in terms of type 2 diabetes. Metformin is probably the, one of the cheapest drugs uh, that we have in our um, uh, uh, pharmaceutical armamentarium. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to have patients on uh, metformin, provided that you can follow them up and, and check on a regular basis whether they've got cardiovascular disease. On the question of inertia, if you're going to see patients every uh, year or two years, then you might adopt um, a, a, a slightly different view. But, but my view at the moment is to say, let's stick with the evidence. This brings us to the end of the episode. In summary, guidelines agree that cardiovascular risk should be assessed when selecting first-line pharmacotherapy for type 2 diabetes, and that those with a history of cardiovascular disease or who are at high risk are given an SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1 receptor agonist. Debate continues around using these agents at populations with low risk at a very early stage of type 2 diabetes. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can stay up to date by following us on Twitter at DKI Practice or connecting on LinkedIn. You can find links to these in the episode notes and we look forward to joining you next time.